Welcome to episode 56 of This Week in Legal Blogging, presented by LexBlog. I am Bob Ambrogi. I'm the host of the program, publish my own blog called uh, Law Sites, and host of another podcast, Law Next, where I talk about entrepreneurship and innovation in law. And LexBlog, of course, is home to the world's largest community of legal bloggers and is the uh, industry-leading provider of professional blogs and turnkey digital publishing solutions to lawyers and the world's largest law firms for more than 17 years. And today on This Week in Legal Blogging, we're going to be talking about the topic of women in sports law and in particular about an international organization dedicated to women in sports law. And to help us talk about all that, we have a woman in sports law, <laughs> uh, Lindsay Brandon, who is an attorney uh, in California with the law offices of Howard Jacobs in Westlake Village, California. Lindsay, welcome to uh, This Week in Legal Blogging. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to speak with you and a pleasure to meet you. And uh, uh, we were just chatting a little bit before uh, we started recording because uh, Lexblog, of course, is is based in Seattle. A lot of the people involved in the organization are based in Seattle. And uh, you are a native of Seattle and a, a bit of a Seattle sports fan yourself, I guess, right? I am indeed. And I suppose you could credit Seattle sports and blogging as one of the reasons that I got into this industry in the first place. So. Yeah, how is how is that? Can you explain that? Sure. So um, I I went to law school in Seattle. I got my GD there from Seattle University, and um, I you know I just had a kind of rough end to my time there. I I lost both my parents, unfortunately, Ooh, so and you know not to come out of the gates with with uh, <laughs> such such yeah. dark news, but I really had to rethink a traditional legal career, right? I, I couldn't work full time while I was dealing with that. So I ended up working for another nonprofit at the time and found out that an organization by the name of Oregon Sports News was looking for writers, looking for people to contribute to their online publication. And at, at that time, you know, there was a lot of conversation around uh, the intersection of sports and social justice and the law as well. You know, thinking about Colin Kaepernick and, and the former owner of the, the LA Clippers. And it just seemed to me like nobody was writing extensively about that from a legal perspective, at least not that I, I saw in, in the mainstream, in the mainstream news, right? So I, I applied to write for them and I began writing about those topics. Uh, and then through the course of that, um, I thought about the fact that, you know, this this sports law umbrella exists out there. And I just wasn't aware of it when I was going to law school. Um, now, I believe Seattle U has a robust sports law program, but I, I decided to go back to school and get my LLM in, in international sports law from St. John's University in New York. And that's how I met Howard Jacobs. Um, I went to intern for him. And, uh, and, and I've been there ever since. So uh, it's, it's kind of a bizarre career path when, when people ask me how I got there. You know, I, I have to be honest with them that it, it was kind of serendipitous, but also, you know, that's really just writing about sports and law was, was how I got there. Yeah, it, it's, um, 
there's so much in, in just in what you just said because yeah. I'm so, so so sorry to hear about your parents, but it sounds like one of those incidents where you know adversity leads to opportunities that you wouldn't have foreseen uh, had had it not been for that, um, and how it can change can change the course of your life. And it sounds like that sure. really happened with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's it, it's also fun. I, I, my my career was much a lot of my career was I was a lawyer, but I went I was in journalism for even much of my legal career. And I know my, my law school would sometimes, you know, have me back for these career days where, where I was supposed to talk about, you know, how I got to where I got to. And, and I was like, I have no idea, you know, it's like a kind of a, a random series of events and not like something you could kind of plan around or something. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. So not, not much in the way of advice, but had you, had you been, <laughs> a writer before starting to, to write about law and about sports and social justice issues and all of that? Or? Actually, I, I was, uh, I was also writing articles for a whiskey publication <laughs> because <laughs> in my, in my previous life, I also worked in the service industry uh, in Seattle and it was a very uh, whiskey focused bar. And so I, I learned a lot about the production of the spirit there. And, and that seemed also like another way to channel my creativity for, you know, some, some side income, but, you know, I think in, in particular into Seattle use credit, it was a heavily writing focused school and I just, I enjoyed it. I find that I express myself and sorry to your listeners for this, but I express myself better on paper than I do uh, verbally sometimes. So um, I, I've always loved writing um, and, and that just, you know, of course, in, in the work that we do as lawyers now, it's the, the lion's share. It's, it's not these really dramatic courtroom scenes like you see on tv it's Mm -hmm. it's mostly sitting at a computer and and writing out your arguments and and your thoughts well uh, i i was googling you and i saw somewhere (laughs) a reference maybe you wrote this that said you went from working behind the bar to passing the bar that's that's just (laughs) that's correct yep (laughs) i like it i like it uh so actually one other trivia thing here in terms of your background again i was looking at your 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 background, and I saw that for at some point in your your career, you worked. Uh, I said as a research assistant in the law offices of John Henry Brown. Uh, I did. No, I know John. I I, I once interviewed uh, I interviewed John Henry Brown a couple of times because he he had achieved a little bit of uh, internet fame for a while. He was a well known and accomplished lawyer in his own right, but he way back when Avo got started, uh, mm-hmm. he filed a lawsuit to try and shut them down when Avo was initially came up with this idea of ranking lawyers uh, on a scale of one to 10 or one to five, yeah. or whatever it is they do. Uh, yeah, he wasn't it's like Yelp for lawyers. Yeah. And I had him <laughs> on another podcast I used to do. I interviewed him uh, on a podcast called Lawyer to Lawyer many, many years ago when he first filed that lawsuit and then had the uh, founder of Avo on the next week to respond to him. So uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty incredibly heavy work that the man does and he has some wild stories to tell. Um, and that was, you know, that was brief, um, a brief part of my legal career as a student, but I, I was fortunate to, to have the opportunity. Well, uh, here we are almost 10 minutes into the interview. I haven't gotten to sports law yet, but <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, okay. really interesting. <laughs> uh, no, that's my fault, not yours. But so again, I, I, you know, I want to talk more about this organization, which is what we want to do to talk about and, and uh, your communications 
board member for women in sports law. But uh, first of all, you know, what, what is sports law in terms of how you practice? What is your practice? What, what is it you do? Sure, sure. So so the law offices of Howard Jacobs is a boutique firm um, based out of Westlake Village, as you mentioned. And, and that was started by Howard um, to address the fact that nobody seemed to be filling in this gap of representation of Olympic athletes in in administrative um, proceedings. So so the main um, the lion's share of that at the time was was anti doping. Um, it's you know sports law in the context of what we do in our firm is mostly administrative based. And it falls under the the umbrella of the Olympic movement. So the anti-doping code, the safe sport code, um, and and almost everything is exclusively done in arbitration and then is appealable, at least for anti-doping cases, to the court of arbitration for sport. This is a very niche (laughs) practice and... um, and there are only a couple of other attorneys that are really that have really honed this practice in in the United States. Really? Yeah, and and it was pretty remarkable to find out that that just wasn't something that was that was happening in terms of the the broader sports law practice. I think that in particular in the US you think of professional sports first and foremost and those athletes have the benefit of unions, right? And, mm-hmm. and player representation through those unions. Right. But for Olympic athletes, they don't have that. They don't have access to that. Now, fortunately, uh, U.S. Olympic athletes have the athlete ombuds office at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, and, and they serve as a neutral, a neutral office for athlete support. And so if there's an issue that they have that that can't be resolved without some sort of legal action, then they they will be referred to us or they'll contact us directly. So these are uh, athletes, Olympic athletes who have been uh, charged with doping, uh, the, the allegations of, of doping brought against them or yeah. in, in safe sport cases of, of, of inappropriate uh, conduct of some kind. Exactly. Uh, and then you're essentially representing them as, as you say, as a union would represent somebody in a, in a, in a, in a labor arbitration kind of a matter. Is that, is that right? That's yeah, that's exactly right. And, and we have, you know, at least with safe sport, which is a very young organization, we've, We've represented individuals um, on both sides of of the dispute, um, but also accusers and accusees. Or, or exactly, exactly, and and then there's also subsequent uh, civil litigation that can result from those types of disputes. So so sometimes we'll represent individuals or you know the the governing body that ends up in in the middle of it as well. And then I think another important thing to mention about the practice is that particularly on the on the cusp of the Beijing Olympics is that we we represent athletes in a lot of what are called Section 9 claims. And, and that is something that falls under the Ted Stevens Act, which was created to codify essentially these 
these rights for athletes where if they feel like they are being prevented from participating in a protected competition, then they can petition to to be heard on that. Um, and, and the most common circumstances where you see a Section 9 is if, you know, there's discretionary criteria set out for Olympic qualifications and they don't feel as though the selection committee or the national governing body followed their own selection criteria in picking the athletes who get to go to the Olympics. So last week was was filled with those types of cases and they, they come fast and they have to be resolved immediately. So that's that's also a huge part of the work that we do. Wow. So, so it's a really international practice that you have. Yeah, exactly. I know you had your background included uh, writing in, in whiskey. What, what, were you an athlete as well? I mean, were you involved in athletics uh, in, in your own background? I, I like to say that I'm um, a Jill of all trades, master of none, but uh-huh. I was, I did play um, soccer and, and tennis growing up. Uh, uh-huh. I played all through high school. Um, and then I was on, I played tennis for one year in, in college and, and got to go play in a USTA club competition. And then I just, you know, college happens and, and yep. you realize that your sports career isn't going to go any further. <laughs> so yep. so yep. Uh, that was it. But I, you know, I still enjoy participating in, in league sports if I can find the time. Yeah, it sounds like time is... Uh... In, in short supply with everything you're 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 doing already. Yeah, <laughs> this time of year in particular, for sure. Yeah. So you're involved with this organization, uh, Women in Sports Law, uh, which is an international organization based in Switzerland. I guess what what is what is the organization about? Why does it exist? Women in Sports Law was created by a really incredible team of female sports lawyers from across the globe to address the fact that even though there's a huge membership of women practicing in sports, whether it be, and you know, when we think about what that means, right, it's uh, anything from athlete representation to regulation to, you know, corporate uh, support, but it still felt like there wasn't an organization out there where you could go to find, you know, colleagues for support or mentorship or, you know, to gather in a space and have conversations that where it felt like you were, you were taken seriously, I guess is, is another way of putting it. You know, the, the international sports law community is incredibly diverse, but, you know, when you, when you saw these events where these various conferences on any number of um, international sports law stakeholder items, and, and you saw who were the experts speaking, up until recently, it was mainly older European white males um, who have long been the selected experts on these particular topics. And in thinking about why that was, you know, the in particular women in sports law realized that, you know, the structure of institutions like the Court of Arbitration for Sport, arbitrators are appointed, but they're also selected by 
the respondent and the claimant. And when you have certain individuals that end up as repeat uh, arbitrators that really they're able to demonstrate, you know, their thoughts and and feelings and their interpretations of, of the code or whatever law is applicable there, uh, you get a better sense as somebody selecting the arbitrator of what their decision might be, what the outcome mm-hmm. might be when you're arguing before them. And so they've they've created this this long-standing jurisprudence, and I think that practitioners are afraid to select more diverse candidates for these types of roles because they're just not fear of the unknown. (laughs) Yeah. They're just not sure what's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's one of the main initiatives of women in sports law right now is to increase diversity in particular, you know, women in, in, arbitration panels and decision-making roles. And and it doesn't even have to be with the court of arbitration for sport. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's plenty of first instance arbit- arbitration tribunals, whether they're assembled by anti-doping organizations or otherwise governing bodies that, you know, it's an opportunity for them to really gain meaningful experience in those roles and eventually be promoted up to the court of arbitration for sport. Yeah. Is that, do, do the uh, arbitrators who serve in the court of arbitration, uh, are, are they also advocates or, or are they one or the other? Are you either an advocate or an arbitrator? Or they, ca- they can be, yes, they can be an advocate as well. And so, you know, it, I mean, I think a lot of arbitrators have also been um, judges. They have also been advocates for um, national governing bodies. Very few, I find, um, at least that that I've practiced before, have been athletes themselves, and so I think that representation is is critical. You know, even better, a female athlete mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in these in these types of roles to understand the dynamics of the case before them. Are, are the people who are involved? in WISH law, you call it, right? Is that right? Mm-hmm. Women in sports law. Right. Um, are are they mostly lawyers or or what kinds of other roles would they be in, uh, in, in you know, in their, in their, uh, in their professional lives? Sure. So I think almost every member has a background in law. Um, they don't necessarily have to be a practicing lawyer. Uh, we also have a lot of case managers that are that are um, members. So you know the individuals that are managing this whole system of, of international sports law. Um, we have we have judges from all across the globe that are members, and we have individuals that have sort of even before this idea of sports law existed, right? <laughs> As we kind of know it today where they were appointed into positions and then grew with the practice. And so, you know, in particular, some, some of the more developing areas where our members come from, um, where regulation and sport is just less, it was less developed, say, 20 years ago than it is now. I mean, it's, it sounds like, and I, I don't, 
I'm, I'm by no means uh, an expert or even uh, even you know uh, a little bit knowledgeable about this area, but it, it sounds like sports law is an area that's much more amenable to networking on a na- on an international level because so many of the issues are decided on an international level as opposed to some other areas of law practice which are very jurisdiction based is that is that sure. fair to say or I think that's incredibly fair to say um, and I think that one of our goals is bringing that community together in particular because there's there are disparities in resources for some of our members right something I'd like to highlight is you know our member of the month page that we have, on the Wislaw website, it really shows the diversity of our membership, but also just how how much adversity some of these members have gone through to get to their position in sports law. But I I do find that you know in the work that each of us does, we have a lot more in common than we do not. Yeah. I'm looking at it now. I, I don't think I've even mentioned this, but uh, the for anybody listening to this program, the women, if you just Google women's sports law, you'll find it probably. <laughs> but it, the, the website is Wislaw, W-I-S-L-A-W dot C-H, which is the, uh, the, Swiss, uh, the Swiss domain. I mean, I mean, you talked about some of the obstacles to women becoming arbitrators, women's, women in sports law becoming arbitrators. And it, it, what are there, are there obstacles to, 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 have there been sort of historical obstacles to women getting into sports law at all in the beginning, in the first place? I think so. I, I can't speak for everyone, right. But for, for myself, uh, I think that there, especially early on, there was a lot of imposter syndrome. And I think that there's at least in, in, other members that I've talked to, there's this feeling like you have to do twice as much just to get to the same spot, right? Whereas a lot of men in the field can, you know, fake it till they make it, I guess. (laughs) There's just an inherent difference in, in approach to practice and wanting to feel like you know as much as possible um, and you've done as much as possible before you step into some sort of um, role like an arbitrator or, you know, head of a governing body or um, anything like that. Yeah. I mean, it's it seems that sports organizations, both uh, obviously within the United States, but, but internationally as well, um, continue to be very male dominated. Even organizations in related to, to women's sports or, or, you know, say like, look at something like women's soccer or something where I, I mean, you know, I guess FIFA oversees male and, and female sports, but it's still a very heavily male dominated and uh, uh, traditional organization. Uh, and I mean, we've seen that a lot over the last couple of years in terms of a lot of the issues that, uh, that women's soccer players have had to uh, advocate on behalf of themselves for mm-hmm. because, because FIFA wasn't doing it. But d- does that, is is that how you see it? Is that does that remain so, and does that make it more challenging for for women in this field? I think that there's been a lot of conversation about representation and diversity, particularly during the course of the pandemic. You know, several global events have have happened that have forced that conversation. Now, whether or not that's put into practice, I think sort of remains to be seen. You know. 
I think there's also just there needs to be more conversation around, uh, you know, who are the stakeholders in these types of situations? You know, I think not only is female representation critical, but athlete representation is just as critical. Mm -hmm. Um, People that are, who's the most impacted by these powers that be making their decisions? Why aren't there more people that look like them sitting on these boards, sitting as heads of governing bodies. I think, you know, that conversation has to be had all the time in order to remind everyone that we still don't really have a larger governing structure that is representative of those that it governs, right? I think that can be be said for a lot of things, um, not just sport. Yeah. So so how else... how else does uh, Whistlaw, what, what other kinds of activities does it engage in in order to raise awareness around these issues? So we have quite a few meetings throughout the year. Unfortunately, none, none in person as of late. But, you know, I think through regional programs, regional meetings, we can gather members that are similarly situated, similarly located, and they have the opportunity to network and build their own uh, coalitions of support. And then through larger events like our annual conference and general assembly, that's really an opportunity to come together and have these types of hard conversations about, you know, what is what is it that our organization does for our members? You know, what sort of services do we provide them? And in particular, I think that's our main goal is to have our members feel like they're a part of something that they can't access in other, um, in other professional outlets. You know, we have a, we have a database on our website where if somebody feels like they need to reach out and contact another member for mentorship, or even just a question about their practice, you know, we've made that available to them. And I think, in particular in, in the pandemic <laughs> where where we all feel so so isolated from one another. That's been mm-hmm. a really critical critical support system. And we've also hosted, you know, it's it's not all heavy um, conversation either. We do uh, like holiday happy hours and uh, we had a we had a yoga uh, online yoga class that <laughs> we provided <laughs> for free, you know, other other ways to help everyone cope with what we've been going through throughout this pandemic as well. That's great. Are, you mentioned earlier that your practice is somewhat niche and that there aren't many others in the United States that do it. Obviously, sports mm-hmm. law is is broader than just your the, the area that you focus on, but are there many other uh, U.S. members of women in sports law? There are, and we're trying to increase membership. I think one of the biggest things to remember is that as a as international sports law is a European largely European based uh, entity just it just so happens that most organizations in the court of arbitration for sport are based in Switzerland it is easy to feel left out of of that just by virtue of where I practice but we hosted an event in in Los Angeles where we gathered a, a diverse practice of, of female sports lawyers from 
you know, Arendt Fox to Bosterman, which is which is a an athlete agency to counsel from professional leagues. And it it really provides, I think, an opportunity for for local attorneys, maybe that they're unsure whether or not they they want to get into sports law, an opportunity to hear about how how these careers came to fruition. We're just about out of time here, but anything else that you'd like people to know about Wislaw? Yeah, so um, we'll be launching a campaign for more women in decision-making roles on International Women's Day. And so I'd just like to bring that to people's attention because um, we'll be announcing events and initiatives relating to that throughout the year. Um, and, you know, I just am grateful for the opportunity to uh, to be able to talk about the organization. And I hope that anybody who's interested will, will check out our website. We also have, for those that may not be interested in membership, we also have Friends of Wislaw, those that are supporters of the organization. And, and again, we do have events that all are welcome to. You don't necessarily have to be a member to participate. Right, my last question to you is, what's your take on uh, Seattle's new hockey team? Oh boy, I think it's great. <laughs> I haven't have you been. been? No. I haven't been able to go just yet, but I'm looking forward to it, and I'm looking forward to meeting the the new team dog. I think that that might be just as exciting as the game itself. <laughs> yeah, what, what are they? The Kraken? Is that what they're called? The Kraken? They're the Kraken. The I think. Kraken. Okay. Yeah, I I was really pulling for the stock guy as the as the team mascot, but I, they seem to be doing just fine with the Kraken. <laughs> good, good. Well, Lindsay, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for taking the time to uh, tell us about your practice and to tell us about women in sports law. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, and listeners, this was episode 56 of This Week in Legal Blogging. Uh, you can find our full library of shows wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, and you can also go head over to lexblog.com slash twilb, T-W-I-L-B, for this week in legal blogging, for outlines of each and every show we've done so far. Uh, and if you want to give us a quick rating while you're there, please do. We'd appreciate it. On behalf of myself and everybody at Lexblog, thanks so much for listening.